Well, as you know, we finished our exposition of the book of Daniel, and uh, we are rushing headlong toward uh, Paul's epistle to the Romans. At least I feel like I'm rushing headlong into it. We'll start that in October. But before we get there, we're going to consider three vital messages about the Bible, the church, and the gospel. You might call them foundation stones for faithful ministry. And they're biblical fidelity, which we'll cover today, biblical practice, and a biblical gospel. I'm going to present them to you not only by looking at Scripture, because that alone is our authority, but but also by example from, from church history. So each message, we're going to... Look at a person from church history that illustrates the truth and, and in some cases even died for the, the truth that, that we'll see in, in the Bible. And in the end, we'll apply it to our own lives. And so you're going to get a Bible lesson, an illustration from a faithful man's life and a personal application for, for your own life. So I want you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you're not there already, the passage that Ryan read for us. And we're going to start with what we will call biblical fidelity. And we have a tremendous illustration from the life of of a man named John Wycliffe. You probably know the Marine Corps motto, uh, Semper Fidelis, or uh, Semper Fi, meaning always faithful. That's a wonderful motto. But the motto of every Christian must be sola scriptura, or scripture alone. It's the only authority that that we have. It's the only source of, of light and truth that we have. John MacArthur once said that the church in, a, in America has spiritual aids. And, and because of that, it's being infected with all types of, of heresies. As you know, AIDS is is a virus, but that's not what kills you. It, it weakens your immune system to where your immune system can't fight off even the most benign of a, a virus. And in the same way, the American church has no theological immune system because for decades it's failed to preach doctrine and to focus on the Bible. And because of that, its spiritual white blood count barely registers in, in most, most places. It'd be hard to, to go back and, and find a point where, where that began. You, you might even trace it back to um, Charles Finney and uh, the revivalism movements. But, but clearly you could say when liberalism of higher criticism uh, came across the pond from Europe in the late 1800s, that liberal teaching that denied uh, supernaturalism, miracles, and, and the Bible... The church that, that bought into that uh, was left with nothing but social welfare programs. And that led to the pragmatic church movement of the late 1900s, or you probably know it as the seeker-sensitive movement, that an iteration of the positive thinking movement with Norman Vincent Peale and, and otherwise. And, and by the way, the woke movement is just the next iteration of that, of that pragmatic church movement today. There was a number of responses to, to, to this. Um, fundamentalism was a good response. It started well as a cross-denominational movement that defined, attempted to define doctrine. Like, what are the fundamentals of the faith? 
what must a Christian believe? There are people that were claiming themselves to be Christians, denying the virgin birth, denying the resurrection of Christ, and calling themselves Christians. And so fundamentalism said, what, what must you believe? What are the fundamentals of the, of the faith? And so that started good, but, but then that morphed into a, a group preaching about pra- the practices of liberalism rather than their, their bad doctrine. And so you had the post-prohibition era, and what followed was dominated by sermons about drinking and dancing rather than doctrine and its decline. That's led to the, the modern fundamental movement, which is a sad echo of its heritage. Uh, I mean, if, if you go to one of those churches, there... There's only three sermon topics, soul winning, separation, and the King James Bible. Everything else is, is left out. And every one of those errors in focus can be traced in some way to a failure in biblical fidelity. And if you think the past is bad, the, the present is, is even worse. As I mentioned the woke movement and all kinds of other stuff. The total absence of the Bible in, in many churches, which which sadly is the norm. It used to be called the, the Bible Belt. Someone said that you, you could probably rather call it the Church Belt. There's a lot of churches, but there's not a lot of Bible in those churches. I was told over the weekend even about a local event that was, that was billed with this tagline, Encountering Jesus Through the Power of Music. And as I heard that, I thought, what, what does that even mean? Encountering Jesus through the power of music. I mean, the gospel has the power of God into salvation. We're commanded to preach, but nowhere in Scripture are we ever even given an example of someone encountering Jesus through the power of, of music. I mean, Jesus didn't run around Galilee singing. John the Baptist didn't play the guitar by the Jordan River. I mean, our Lord didn't send out 12 merry men to act as minstrels strumming people into the kingdom. And when you actually think about that statement, it's utter nonsense. You you see, if you believe the Bible is God-breathed, if it's profitable and and sufficient, then that will demand that your churches and your life be centered on the text of Scripture. And your ministry and practice will echo that that as well. I mean, if this book, the book that you you have in your lap, the book that's laid open on this pulpit this morning, if this book really is God's voice and He speaks every time His Word is accurately presented, then, then why would we want to listen to anyone else's voice, even if it's accompanied by, by a tune? Why would... Would the church look for any replacement for such a powerful and, and, and world-altering source or turn to cultural movements to change things? I mean, if it's true, and it is, that God is a verbal God and that when He speaks, things happen, then, then why would we want to muffle His voice or, or not bring His voice to, to bear at the gathering of God's people at all. I mean, from the very first verse of Scripture, God declares His voice, not man's, has creative power. He he said, let there be light, and and there was light. And the the Apostle Paul uh, picks up this truth in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, saying the Lord uses the same creative power in, in salvation. For God who said, light has shone out of darkness, is the one who has shone in 
in our hearts to give the light of the, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He, he raced, uh, Paul restated it another way in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, that you probably know well. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of, of Christ. And it wasn't just Paul in the New Testament. Uh, uh, Moses placed God's voice at the very center of a believing life. The Shema in Deuteronomy that, that God gave Israel begins with the words, Hear, O Israel, meaning hear God's voice, hear His words, implying obey them and, and live by them. He goes on to talk about how the, the Word is to be central in your own heart. You're to hide it in your heart and you're to teach it in, in your home. It, it's the, it's the, 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 the central theme of, of life. Deuteronomy 8.3 8, tells us that the, the manna miracle was to teach us that we do not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The, the Bible is life because it contains God's voice. It's more important than food. It's, it's sustenance. Without it, we'll shrivel and, and die. That's what Jesus was saying in John 15 when, when He equated His words abiding in you with fruit bearing. If I abide in you, my words abide in you. He further explained what He meant in John 17, 17 in His high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father and He says, Sanctify them, that's the disciples and the church and you and everybody that follows, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. God's word must abide in you. God's words are the very center of discipleship. That's what Jesus is saying. They're the heartbeat of the Christian life. Without God's words, you don't have discipleship or a functioning church or a great commission. Jesus said to go to make disciples and baptize them and teach them all things that I've commanded you. It, it's the, the very words of God. It's the, the center of, of, of everything. And the church without the Bible turns into a, an emaciated shadow of what God intends it to be. And, 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 and those may be well-meaning, may be having good motives, uh, who try to keep it going with things other than, than the Bible, either create a monster or a marshmallow. It's either a hideous picture of what the church is supposed to be, or it's, it's just it's fluffy and there's no substance whatsoever. It's exactly what Paul is emphasizing to his young protege in 1 Timothy chapter 4. This uh, is a familiar passage to you because it begins with the, the latter days. Look at verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. It says, But the Spirit explicitly says in the latter times that some will fall away from the, from the faith. I've heard many sermons about that. I think we even referenced this in, in the book of Daniel. So it's a familiar passage, the context here. It's also uh, the passage that contains that verse that young preachers like to take out of context. In verse 12, let, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Um, but verse 6 provides the theme of the whole section. Look, if you would, at verse 6, verse Timothy 4. Paul says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, that's to the church, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. So Paul's concern for Timothy is that he would be a good minister of Jesus Christ. It's a, 
It's a section of the Bible that provides a, a measure for every biblical ministry. It's a, it's a measure for every church. I mean, Paul is explaining to Timothy how to be a faithful or literally a good servant of, of Christ Jesus. And, and he does that by giving characteristics and commands to, to those who will fulfill that, that charge. How am I to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, a good minister? What are the marks of a, of a good church? Well, right here they are. There are 12, if you follow MacArthur, but, but I count eight up to, up to our verse this morning. A faithful minister alerts the flock to error. That's what he's saying in verse 6, and pointing out these things to the brethren. He focuses the flock on sound doctrine. Look at the end of verse 6. Nourished on the faith and of sound doctrine, which you have followed. He turns them away from secondary matters. He keeps them focused on the Bible and not all types of other things. Verse 7, and have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. And a faithful minister disciplines himself unto godliness, beginning at the end of verse 7. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And then there's that passage about exercise and how it profits a little. But, but it's a trustworthy statement in verse 9 and uh, serving full acceptance about godliness. And verse 10, he works hard. A faithful minister works hard. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the, on the living God. And he's a model to follow. Verse 12, here's the young preacher verse. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. It's about you, not what other people do. Paul's acknowledging Timothy's youthfulness. So he says, counteract that by, by modeling a speech and conduct and love and purity. Show yourself as an example to those who, who we believe and he remains or maintains biblical fidelity. Verse 13. Here's our verse. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. I mean, I think verses 12 and 13 actually summarize the, encapsulate everything that he's saying in this entire passage. Paul says if you want to be a good servant or a good minister of Christ, you should, you should be followable and your doctrine faithful. You should be a model of Christ in character, and, and your mode should be carefulness in the communication of the Scriptures. I mean, his theme of this entire section is a holy life and sound doctrine, and, and he even describes how to do both of, of those things. You exemplify one, a holy life, and you rivet your doctrine, your teaching, you rivet the other to the Bible. And, and both have a public nature. You're, you're an example in, in verse 12. You're a model by, by putting your life on display for the sheep. Your, your example is observed by others. And look at verse 15. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so your progress will be evident before all. There's a, a public idea of, of your sanctification, your growth being evident. And you're to give attention to the public reading of Scripture and, and the expectation of teaching in, in verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading. It, you're also to pay close attention to your doctrine in, in verse 16, so others may observe it as well, public teaching. And notice the importance of, of the order in verse 13. Read, exhort, and teach. 
So you can't have exhortation and teaching without scriptures that are publicly proclaimed. I mean, the, the key word there would be public. There, in, your, in your Bibles, it, it may be in italics, and it should be, because there's an article in the original. It's the reading of, of scripture. That's not your private Bible time, but, but what happened in the public worship service. That's why your English adds the word public. Pastors are to read, to exhort, to teach. That's the center of church life. They they're to continually do that. They're to give attention. That's the, the present active verb there. It's an imperative and followed by three nouns of what you're to give your attention to, to, to reading, to exhortation, and, and to teaching. And Paul says, do that until I come earlier in the, in the passage. And so Timothy's continual ministry as a good servant of Jesus is centered around, around these three things, backed up by, by a life of character that displays them. A good servant reads the text, explains the text, calls people to live out that text, and then that's modeled in their own life. That's why we do what, what we do in this church, not only because we're, we're Baptist or we train people in exposition, but because Scripture commands this. And this Scripture is not just the, the ideas of, of Paul, but, but God Himself. It's the central task of the, of the church gathering. Worship God by reading His Word to hear His voice, explain what God is saying, and then exhort one another about those implications, meaning how to live that out. Or, as Hebrews says, provoke one another to, to love and good works. That's biblical fidelity. It's crystal clear. He even gives the results of what will happen if you do this. Look, if you would, at verse, thir- uh, verse 16. Verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, as you do this, you will ensure salvation both of yourself and for those who hear you. He says you'll not only ensure your salvation, but but others. A, a faithful life and faithful preaching centered on the Bible sanctifies. I mean, God says the fruit of consistent exposition lived out, brings perseverance. And it produces the same in, in others. Theologians call it perseverance of the saints. So by devoting yourself or cleaving uh, the ministry of a church to these things, it brings about the sanctification of God's people. Not lightning bolt strikes in, in, in the midst of high-energy sermons, but, but, but as God's voice reigns on His people, it nourishes them and they, they grow up in a, in a most holy faith. So imagine, if you would, given the clarity of this command, if when you gathered, the Bible wasn't read at all. Imagine if when you came to church, only uh, quotes from the Pope or dead saints were given. And that was, even that was given in a language that you couldn't understand. It was, it was given in Latin. And even if you could understand it, there was no exhortation, there was no teaching, there was no explanation. There was no exposition, no exhortation, no Bible. And what you got in place of all of that was a short ritual in Latin and a stale wafer placed in your mouth at the very end, which is quite symbolic, I might add. And the men who were leading the church... We're not like what Paul described here, models of Christ-like character. They lived corrupt and godless lives. They were evil and they were immoral. 
So you didn't even have their model to follow. Well, you surely wouldn't grow much in, in godliness. That's exactly what was going on in John Wycliffe's day. In John Wycliffe's day, these verses were not just periodically avoided, they were systematically disobeyed and intentionally ignored. The Catholic Church provided Bibles only to clergy written in Latin, and their homilies were the same, on purpose. They actually used it as a barrier to maintain their power over people and create separation between themselves and the, and the masses. John Wycliffe is called the, the morning star of the, of the Reformation because he came on the scene before the Reformation ever took hold. The morning star is actually the planet Venus that, that comes up right before sunrise in the eastern sky. So before the sun, you can see this, this planet very visible. And so a hundred years before anyone ever heard about Martin Luther, or two hundred years before John Calvin, John Wycliffe blazed a trail of biblical fidelity for others to, to follow. He was credited as being the, the light that first dawned after a long period of darkness. And he had a, the single greatest influence on, on that time than, than any other man. Merle uh, Debonier said... Uh, if Luther and Calvin are the fathers of the Reformation, Wycliffe is its grandfather. He had such an impact because of one primary conviction, the authority of Scripture. He believed that to his core. He influenced a movement that caught fire and then smoldered and prepared Europe for a German monk that came along a hundred years later with a piece of paper and a mallet. He sent out men called called Lollards all over the countryside preaching the Bible and the gospel in a time when there was no gospel or Bible. He printed uh, copies of the scriptures and, and tracts in English for the common man to read. He influenced the likes of, of John Huss and William Tyndale. He, he produced the first Bible in the, for the English-speaking world uh, from the Latin Vulgate, and he inspired countless unknown men to stand. Well, it became one of the Reformation's battle cries, sola scriptura, scripture alone. He did all of that by the age of 56. I'm 50. Six years later, if I was Wycliffe, I would die, which I'm not. And if it wasn't enough, that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough reason to pay attention to his life. Any man who stirs up the Roman Catholic Church to the point that it excommunicates you, digs up your bones and buries or burns them with your works long after you're dead, 44 years after you're dead, is worthy of attention. If you have that kind of lasting impact. And I think if Wycliffe had a theme verse, it would be 1 Timothy 4.13. Until I come, give the attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Because after growing up in a changing time under the sway of the Catholic Church, he became to believe that the Bible needed to be in every person's hand, read, explained, and obeyed. And if you want to summarize Wycliffe's focus, it was twofold. He wanted to translate the Scriptures in everyday language so people could read it and understand its doctrines. And he demanded the church live under biblical authority, not Rome's or England's or anybody else's. And I want to tell you about his life today as, a, as an illustration, but, but in order to, to, to do that, you have to take a trip back in time about to uh, the 1300s. 
Here is a historical timeline of Wycliffe that are, uh, I just highlighted a few things that may be of, of interest to you. But John Wycliffe is primarily remembered for producing the first English Bible because in his day the scriptures were forbidden in the common man's language. I mean, certain French nobility had a copy of the scriptures in, in, in French, but none were available for, for somebody like me or you. And the English version, for the most part, was non-existent. The, the Roman church ruled England and Europe with a, with a death grip. And they were very corrupt and, and had little, if any, light in them at all. It was a time of, of, uh, of papal power or papal authority. We hear a lot about the Pope today, and, and he looks like a kind, gentle, little gray-haired fellow that comes out and talks sometimes with a lot of people in front of him or rides around in that little Pope-mobile car, but, but that's not the way that the, the Pope operated then. And by the way, the same doctrines, this Pope that you see today, he still has. A hundred years, Pope Innocent III, prior to Wycliffe, forced King John II of England, the brother of Richard the Lionhearted, to yield his power by, by threatening to excommunicate him. He issued a decree declaring that, that all of the people of England didn't have to obey him as king any longer. And fearing he would lose his power, King John submitted to the Pope, pledging his complete allegiance to him. This is, this is what he, he said an excerpt from the oath that King John signed in May, on May 15, 1213. I, John, by the grace of God, King of England and Lord of Ireland, in order to expiate my sins from my own free will and the advice of my barons, give to the Church of Rome, to, the Pope, to Pope Innocent and his successors, the Kingdom of England and all other prerogatives of my crown. I will hereafter hold them as the Pope's vassal, I will be faithful to God, to the Church of Rome, and to the Pope, my master, and his successors legitimately elected. So it was a time of papal power. It was also a time of darkness. As I said, there was no Bible. The church was corrupt. The church actually controlled people through the Mass, you know, what we call the Lord's Table, where both elements are there, and it's a symbol of, of Christ. The, the Roman Mass is, is actually a... Uh, a ritual, and what they would do, if you believe that grace, the grace of God only comes to you through the Roman Mass, then, then, then what the church would do is just shut the Mass down. So people wouldn't be able to, to partake of the, of the grace of God. The Scriptures were forbidden, and the, the church said the common people were uneducated and, and needed someone to interpret it for them. It was held that if they had a Bible, they, they may read it and get it wrong because they lacked understanding of church tradition. The, the Mass and prayers were done in Latin, which was a, a language that only the very educated knew. And so the people didn't even know what the priest was saying whenever he was muttering. One of Wycliffe's enemies, uh, Naughton of Leicester, complained that by translating the Scriptures into English, it would thus, quote, open it to laity and women who could read. What a, what a horrible thought that is. And what made this situation even worse, where, where people were, were dying in great numbers without Christ and, and without the gospel. So it wasn't just a time of papal power and Roman darkness. It was a, it was a time of, of death. It's a picture of priests blessing some other priests during the, the plague. It was, it was called the, the Great Dying. 
was the bubonic plague or Black Death, one of the, the first significant pandemics. It was caused by a bacterium named Yersinia pestis. It makes COVID look like indigestion. I'm serious, it does. Uh, the Black Death was carried by rats and fleas throughout Europe on the, the trade routes. Three major outbreaks in England, they say, decimated up to a third of the entire population. Now, just to give you some, some comparison, if you equate that to a third of America's population through a, you know, through a pandemic, 333, 333 million that would mean 109 million people would die of COVID if it was equated to, to the plague. And due to lack of biblical understanding caused by Catholicism, superstition ran wild. And so they tried to deal with it in, in all different kinds of things. They didn't wear masks in those days. They, they, they went around whipping themselves. It was in response to the thought that the plague was from God's judgment. So, so they had men of the church travel from town to town whipping themselves in, a, in an effort to mimic the sufferings of Jesus prior to His crucifixion, hoping to ease, ease God's wrath. But all this did was actually spread the plague through the unsanitary practice. You can imagine what happens if you would whip yourself with a, with a cord and it brought blood and you catch the plague in one town and you take the plague to another town. And that was the environment in which Wycliffe lived. Wycliffe was born in Yorkshire, England. It's little, there's little known about his life before he entered Oxford. He became a fellow at Meryton College in about 1360, a master in Balliol College around the same time. He excelled in studies, and he, he grew in a reputation as a theologian and a philosopher in, in the university. He was a principal speaker in a theological debate, uh, debates. He was ordained as a priest in 1351. He, he didn't uh, reject Rome all at once. He grew in his understanding. And so he was appointed a, a vicar of a parish in Fillingham in 1351. Later, uh, he became the pastor, the rector of Ludowath in 1361. Here's a picture of his, of his church. Here's the modern day picture. Whoa, that went fast picture of the modern day church still standing today you could go there we know exactly what Wycliffe believed and what he taught because of beyond his translation works there there were his writings he I would say there are three that are probably the the most significant on divine dominion which took aim at the papal authority on civil dominion which targeted the Roman church's assertion that it had power over the English crown and then on the truth of the sacred scriptures, which further developed the, the doctrine of the authority of scripture. Stephen Nichols said in 1370, these three significant works were countermeasures to the church's corruption and were crucial to setting the stage for the Reformation. Two faculty members visiting Oxford returned with Wycliffe's writings to their home city of Prague, which in turn influenced John Huss and Martin Luther's early writings were said to have the fingerprints of John Wycliffe all over them. And we know what he preached and believed. Wycliffe exposed many of the errors of Roman Catholicism. Cornerstone of his conviction was the sufficiency of Scripture. His foundational doctrine was the Bible was the sole authority for faith and practice. He said this, quote, "...believers should ascertain for themselves what are the true matters of their faith." 
by having the scriptures in a language which all may understand. He believed strongly in the doctrine of election, being influenced by Augustine during his studies at Oxford. He, he said that the true church is that of the elect, not the visible organization on earth, which was very pivotal in, in counter to, to the Catholic Church, who claims that that's how you, you enter the kingdom, through the Catholic Church. Wycliffe believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. He stated, It is impossible for any part of the Holy Scriptures to be wrong. In Holy Scripture is all the truth. One part of Scripture explains another. He rejected the teaching that tradition is equal to, in authority to, to the church, or to, to the scriptures. He rejected transubstantiation and indulgences. He said if the Roman mass changes a wafer into God, they ought not make a God that can be eaten by rats and mice. He taught that the apostolic churches uh, had only elders and deacons and declared any layer above that uh, that had been, was introduced by Caesarean pride. And he opposed papal authority. He declared it's, quote, blasphemy to call any head of the, the church save Christ alone. He had even stronger words than that. Here's what he said concerning the papacy, quote, It is supposed, and with much probability, that the Roman pontiff is the great Antichrist, end quote. Now that, as you can imagine, didn't win too many friends in, in Italy. He said, quote, How shall any sinful wretch who knows not whether he be da uh, damned or saved constrain men to believe that he's the head of the Holy Church? Mark, uh, Marcus Severn said, uh, Whereas the, the church, uh, church figures, other church figures attacked the corrupt practices of the Roman Catholic Church, Wycliffe attacked the doctrines with which were underlying these practices. He often preached against the the, the mendicant monks, the traveling monks who begged for food and money, Wycliffe thought that they were lazy for begging and they needed to work. Because of these convictions, he was, he was willing to endure the wrath of the Catholic Church and the English authorities. In 1377, Wycliffe was put on trial, St. Paul's Cathedral, and the Pope issued a a bull uh, against him. A papal bull is a formal document that, that's issued by the Pope himself. It's called a bulla because of the seal that's affixed to it, which is, depicts perceived apostolic authority. It's, it's identified by the, by the letters Sanctus Paulus and Sanctus Petrus, uh, S-P-A-S-P -S on this seal, on this document. And this was Wycliffe's reply to the, to the papal bull. I'm quoting. He says, You say it is heresy to speak of the Holy Scriptures in English. You call me a heretic because I have translated the Bible into the common tongue of the people. Do you know who you, whom you blaspheme? Did not the Holy Ghost give the Word of God at first in the mother tongue of the nations to whom it was addressed? He's talking about Koine Greek. Why do you speak against the Holy Ghost? You say that the church of God is in danger from this book? How can that be? Is it not from the Bible only that we learn that God has set up a society as a church on earth? Is it not the Bible that gives her all authority, gives all her authority to the church? Is it not the Bible that we learn who is the builder and sovereign of the church? What are the laws by which she is to be governed and the rights and privileges of her members? Without the Bible, what character has the church to show for all these things? It is you 
who placed the church in jeopardy by hiding the divine warrant, the missive royal of her king, for the authority she wields and the faith she enjoins. End quote. For his translation efforts and his biblical views, Wycliffe was hounded by, by the Roman church. Had it not been for the presence of John Gaunt, the son of the king of, uh, of England, King Edward III, he probably wouldn't have made it out of this trial alive. Um, and it might not have just been the, the kingly connection. John Gaunt's armor is, is still on display in the Tower of London today. And that armor is for a man six foot nine inches tall. And so that probably uh, created a little bit of trepidation. But clearly, Wycliffe's greatest accomplishment was the translation of the, of the English Bible. Here's Wycliffe, a picture of Wycliffe in his, in his study. Wycliffe's greatest influence was, was through the Bible that he translated. His New Testament was completed in 1380. The Old Testament in 13. 82 or 84, just before he died, was later revised by one of his disciples, John Purvey, which was the guy who actually, uh, that, that's the, the, the copy that's distributed. He was later martyred for, martyred for his faith. Now you remember, not only did the Bible need to be translated, but it but also need to be copied and distributed. I mean, Gutenberg and his printing press didn't come along for another 60 years, 65 years. So copies had to be painstakingly made by hand and then distributed. Here's a picture. I know you can't read that, but it's a picture of Wycliffe's translation from Latin. It greatly influenced the, the King James Version, other translations. Some entire verses are lifted from Wycliffe's translation into the King James, the, the, the cadence and the, the word order. Take ye my yoke upon you and learn ye of me, for I am mild and meek of heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 comes from Wycliffe. Matthew eighteen twenty For where two or three shall be gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Matthew twenty two twenty one. Therefore yield ye to Caesar those things that be Caesar, and to God those things that be of God. And he spread the Bible and its teaching all over England by training men to proclaim it through itinerant preaching. Wycliffe believed in 2 Timothy 2 too. He believed in training men for ministry. This is a slide of the, the Lollards. Wycliffe had a missionary heart and he trained and sent out preachers to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. These Bible men, as they were commonly called, were were sent out two by two wearing long, dark red robes and carrying a staff that signified their, their pastoral calling and they went about preaching the Bible. They got their name Lollards uh, from another papal bull that was intended as a slur. Uh, the Dutch word Lollen means a singer or a chanter or a mumbler, a mutterer. So they were called they were these mutterers or going around muttering about the Bible. In Latin, the, the word meant noxious wheat or noxious weed mingled with good Catholic wheat. They wore it as a badge of honor. Many of the lawyers were burned alive. There's a record of at least 40 of them that fell to that faith. There's probably many more because the records aren't, aren't, aren't there. Many suffered imprisonment in Lawler Tower, another place. It was in Lambeth Palace and. In London, it was the headquarters of the Archbishop of Canterbury. It, it, 
They were shackled in chains there. The rings for the shackles in, the, in that tower could still be seen until it was, the tower itself was bombed in uh, May 10, 1941 during World War II. Many others were branded as heretics simply for saying that the Bible ought to be in your language and proclaiming exactly what it said. And Wycliffe himself held the same convictions up until his death, the end of his life. In 1381, just three years before he died, Wycliffe boldly proclaimed the doctrine of transubstantiation was detestable error, that, that the, the very bread and, and wine on the communion table uh, literally transform into the literal body and blood of Christ. He taught that they don't change substance, it's just merely symbolic of the, the blood of, of Jesus. So in November 1382, Wycliffe was called before yet another synod of ecclesiastical authorities called the Blackfriars Synod because it was held in a monastery of Blackfriars in London. Forty-seven bishops and monks and religious doctors took their seats, and when they did, a powerful earthquake shook the city. Huge stones fell from the castle walls. Wycliffe declared it was the judgment of God, and afterwards it was called the Earthquake Council. But the synod kept on and condemned Wycliffe, charging him specifically with ten heresies and sixteen errors. Because of that, his writings were forbidden even in England, and the king gave authority to imprison all those who believed the condemned doctrines. Wycliffe himself died from the effects of a stroke in 1384, and persecution of his followers continued even after his death. So what does the Catholic Church do when a man that lands that kind of blow slips through their fingers of temporal judgment? Well, decades after his death, Wycliffe's teachings were, were still perceived as a threat by the church in, in Rome. And because he'd escaped the, prescri the prescribed punishment for, for heresy, he was tried a second time after his death at the Council of Constance in 1415. This time he was condemned, and the council ordered that his body, well now his bones, be exhumed and burned. And Pope Martin V approved the order. The task was carried out in 1428, so 44 years after Wycliffe's death, his bones were burned in a field of execution, and the ashes scattered in the River Swift near Ludewerk. Here's a slide of his bones being burned. But Wycliffe's influence proved a little bit harder to destroy than his bones. The Word of God had already been printed, already been distributed. People already heard it in their own language, and a lamp had been, had been lit. And in spite of much suppression that followed, Wycliffe's great work of translation was taken up by William Tyndale, who translated the, the Bible from the original language rather than the, the Latin Vulgate. I think Thomas Fuller summarized it well when he said this, the Avon to the seven runs, the seven to the sea, and Wycliffe's dust shall spread abroad wide the waters be. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe are the emblem of his doctrine, which is now dispersed all the world over. And you, you listen to a, an illustration like that. It's an illustration, not inspired scripture like 1 Timothy 4. 
But you listen to an illustration like that and you say, oh, to have that type of obedience or to have that type of faithfulness. Well, I would say you, you can. And not only can you, but you must. If you look back at 1 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 13 again. Paul says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and teaching. This is not just a command to Timothy or, or something that John Wycliffe took up because he didn't like the Catholic Church. This is a command that's given to you and, and given to me. Biblical fidelity means the Scriptures must be at the center of your life. I mean, it means that you truly believe that, that these are the, the very words of God whenever you, you hear them. I don't mean that you carry a Bible or that you sit in a church that opens the Bible and talks about the Bible. I don't mean that you know stuff about the Bible. I mean that you believe that the very words on this page are the words of the living God. And that whenever you hear them, it feeds your soul. It's what you, are, you have to share to other people. It means that you believe that you don't need to add anything to this book or take anything away from this book. It means that you believe that these very words have the power to bring a dead person to life, spiritual life. It means that, that you believe these words have the power to, to help someone who's, who's crushed under, under depression or anxiety or whatever it is. It means that you believe no matter what the cultural trends and winds that blow, this book is the anchor for your soul and must be the center of church life in your life. That's what it means. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that to the point that no matter what comes... I'm not talking about people don't like you or people won't show up at your church or, or whatever. I mean, do you believe it to the point that if pressure comes or persecution comes, that you'll stand on that truth? It means you place yourself in a church that believes that as well. And verse 16 gives you the promise. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For if you do this, you will ensure both salvation, both for yourself and for those who hear you. That's the positive. Let me flip that over. To do otherwise is to be disobedient. To do otherwise is to deny the, the man a miracle and starve yourself spiritually. It's to do the opposite of biblical fidelity. It's to be biblically unfaithful. And nobody wants to be that. God says, not John Wycliffe, but the Lord, there must be a time for the, the public reading of Scripture. And the Scriptures must be proclaimed in, in your language. And then those Scriptures must be explained. And then you must be exhorted to obey them. So you read the text, explain the text, call people to live out the text, and then that's modeled in your life as a church member and surely in the lives of the shepherds that proclaim it. And that surely can't be done where the Bible is, is absent or replaced with something else. The whole duty of a minister is wrapped up in these things. 
The whole focus of the church gathering is centered around these things. You see, this is not just a great illustration from church history to be enamored with. It's a model of a model for us to follow. And it's still a model for today. Won't you bow your heads? Father, what grace you worked in a man's life. But what power in your inspired word that brings to us the, the commands, things to do and things to avoid, what to major on, how hard to work, what to proclaim, what not to proclaim. Lord, you don't just give us something to go by, an authority. You even show us how that's, that's to be lived out. Thank you for that. What a precious possession, the Bible. Thank you for a church that believes those things. Thank you for people that are striving to, to live this out in their daily lives. Lord, may you, you help us to be a model of our Savior to others. And may you rivet our doctrine, what we believe, what we teach, to the text of Scripture. And may we do that, not until Paul comes, but until you come. We ask it all in your precious name. Amen.